2 Timothy 2, 8 through 19. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy for, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The word of the Lord. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find knock and it will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened what father among you if his son asks for a fish will instead of a fish give him a serpent or if he asks for an egg will give him a scorpion if you then who are evil now, how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give to the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? 
This is the Gospel of the Lord. Almighty Father, uh, in uh, the Gospel reading, it, Jesus says that you, you know how to give good gifts, and the very best gift you give is yourself uh, in the Holy Spirit. Uh, you give us yourself when you give us uh, your Son, Jesus Christ. You give us yourself in giving us the Holy Spirit. And we ask right now that you will give us yourself. Give us yourself in, as you impart the Holy Spirit in such a way that uh, as we read your word, as we consider your word, uh, fundamentally we'll see Jesus. Um, and bring us to a place where we are so knit together with Christ uh, that we can s deeply say, um, he, he has everything I am. We're all, all for Christ. Um, and we, we can't get ourselves to that place. There's nothing natural about that. It's not normal. So will you do a supernatural work in us? In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And uh, it's helpful if you turn back to the epistle reading, which uh, is on page 6, that reading from 2 Timothy. We're going to be looking at the, um, the last paragraph in that reading. We looked at the previous ones last week. Um, each week, as we're going through Paul's letter to Timothy, his second letter to Timothy, we've been asking this big question. Here it is. Um, how can we, as Emmanuel Church, have a long-term impact? Uh, we don't want to just have, um, you know, great moments Sunday by Sunday. We don't want to just um, have an impact for a, a short amount of time. We want to aim to have a long-term impact uh, in our lives and in the lives of other people. How do we do that? Now, this week, as I was looking at the passage, I realized that there's another question that's kind of underneath the long-term impact question. And there's a more basic question that we need to ask, and here it is. Most simply, how can we be a church that God likes? Put a little bit more uh, uh, politely, how can we be a church that pleases the Lord? Now, here's the funny thing. That's a very obvious, isn't it an obvious question to ask? However, as obvious as it is, it's an easy question to never ask. Uh, seems to me that, that, that most of us, uh, it, you know, we're... It, it's intuitive to ask, what kind of church do I want? What kind of church do I like? Uh, what do I think church should be like? And, and those questions aren't always wrong, but the problem with them is that those, que those questions are primarily focused on, obviously, me. My preferences, my desires, me. What I want to eventually show you in our reading is that our reading wants to turn that all around and say, how can we be a church that pleases not ourselves but God? And let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 15. <clears throat> uh, this is the Apostle Paul writing, just to remind you, he's languishing in a Roman prison. He's waiting to be executed, so things are not going very well for him. And he's writing to Timothy, this young pastor, and Timothy's going through a difficult time as well. And Paul writes this, verse 15, he says, Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God, that's very important, as one approved, as a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So he says, Timothy, lots of difficult things are happening in my life, in your life, but here's, I want you to focus, Timothy, I want you to strive and make every effort to please God in your work. Um, your work, Timothy, particularly as a pastor, how you lead the church, especially how you handle 
the word of truth or Christian teaching. That's how you please the Lord. Now, a couple observations here. Uh, Paul is talking to Timothy. Timothy is a pastor, and he's talking to Timothy about a pastor's primary work. A uh, pastor does uh, a variety of things. And, uh, every now and then people say, um, what, in fact, do you do? Um, and it's one day a week. It's quite a nice gig then, right? Um, but a pastor's main work is, is to teach, to teach Christian truth, to teach it reliably, to teach it accurately, to teach it consistently. Um, that's the pastor's highest priority besides prayer. And so this reading particularly applies um, to uh, clergy, pastors, uh, to home group leaders. If you're a home group leader, listen up. Uh, Sunday school teachers, wardens, um, our bishop. But it also applies to the rest of us. It, implies, it applies to the whole church. And the reason for that is that pastors are meant to treasure God's word and teach God's word in such a way that the whole church, all of us together here at Emmanuel, can become a culture that does the same thing, that rightly handles the word of truth. So the big question is, how can we uh, be a church that pleases God? Answer that question, and uh, long-term impact will follow along. But more specifically, our text says, in order to please God, you need to rightly handle the word of truth. So how do we do that? That's what's going to be our focus. How do we rightly handle the word of truth as a church? And I'm going to show you three things. Uh, fundamentally, what does it mean to rightly handle the word of truth? Number two... What we must avoid, easy pitfalls. And thirdly, what's the motivation? Why do we do it? What do we do? What do we not do? Why do we do it? Okay, first of all, what do we do? Here it is. I'm going to tell you, and then I'll show you. Rightly handling the word of truth means, among other things, the pointy edge of the spear is that all of our teaching must ultimately lead to Christ. Um, many years ago, Amber and I moved from Southern California. We lived very close to Los Angeles, uh, and we moved to Vancouver, British Columbia, which is, if you don't know your ge geography, it's on the west coast of Canada. Anyways, it's a big move, long way from L.A. to Vancouver. And periodically, we'd have people wanting to come and visit because Vancouver's a wonderful place to live, a wonderful, wonderful place to visit, and so they drive up from California and want to stop in. And so I give them driving directions, how to get from Los Angeles to Vancouver. And the nice thing is, um, it, it, was, it was pretty straightforward. You don't even have to Google map it. All you do, if you're in LA and you want to get to Vancouver, specifically to our house, our old house, what you do is I'd say, get on the I-5, Interstate 5, go north, take a left on Nanton Avenue, and we're on the, right, on the left. That was it. It was just really, really straightforward. And the reason for that is that Interstate 5 um, cuts through three states, an international border, innumerable cities, it goes over bridges, it goes under tunnels, and yet despite all of that, it cuts a path precisely from our old house to our new house. It was great. Now, keep that image in your mind and look at verse 15. Paul says that Timothy has to rightly handle the word of truth. Now, the phrase rightly handle literally means to rightly cut the word of truth, which is a weird image in English, and so they just gloss it to handle. But the image appears to 
it implies something like this. The image is of cutting a road through terrain from one place to another place. So Vancouver's a long, long way from Los Angeles, right? But the Interstate 5 cuts a path that goes straight through all of that terrain. It cuts through mountains, and it gets to its destination reliably, straight. And the, the, the idea here is Paul saying pastors, church leaders, and whole, the churches which they lead, we are supposed to teach the scriptures in such a way that we can cut a path through the scriptures right to its fundamental deepest meaning. No detours, no dead ends, no U-turns. We go straight for its deepest meaning and we want to be as clear and straightforward as we possibly can. Okay. Now, if that's the case, it begs a question. And maybe you have, do you have the question in your mind? If we're supposed to uh, cut straight to the meaning of the text, the meaning of the scriptures, the meaning of the word of truth, then it begs the question, what is that deepest meaning? Um, if we're supposed to cut a path through the scriptures to the destination that God wants people to get to, then what is that destination? Where are we supposed to end up? Because the Bible, you'll, you'll know this if you've read it much. If you, don't, if you haven't read it, you, my guess is that you've heard. The Bible's a big book. Uh, and there's a lot of stuff in there. There's some weird stuff in there. Is there, here's my question, is there a single de destination that unites all of Christian teaching? If we are to cut the path, where is the path supposed to end up? Now, that's the question. Look back at the text, and I want you to do some careful thinking with me and reading. Look at verse 14. Paul tells Timothy, remind them, meaning his church, remind them of these things. Now, stop. So I want to ask Paul, Paul, okay, what things? Paul is supposed to remind his people of things, and apparently when he reminds them of these things, is he, when he does it well, he'll be rightly handling the word of truth. So my question is, what are these things that Timothy is supposed to remind his people of? If I answer that question, then I'll have an insight of the destination that we're supposed to cut a path to. Well, look at the previous paragraph. That's why we printed it. Look at verse 8. Paul says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached by my gospel. Now, there it is. If you look through all of Paul's teaching, if you look through Jesus' teaching, if you look through the whole of the New Testament, and then you read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, what you'll find is that all Christian teaching is many different ways of doing one thing, and that one thing is that we are to cut a clear path to Jesus Christ, who he is, fully God, fully human, what he has accomplished on the cross, and what it means to entrust ourselves to him and follow him day by day, who he is, what he did, what it means to turn and follow him. Cut a clear path to Jesus Christ. All Christian teaching is about that. 
Think about the Bible again, right? Um, It's a strange book. Um, In fact, it's more like a library, right? It's uh, 66 books uh, written in three languages, several dialects. It was written over the course of hundreds of years. It is not the product of any single human author. It is not the product of any single culture. There is no single editor that bound the whole thing together. So what is it that unites it? And the big audacious Christian claim is that the whole of the Bible and all Christian doctrine is designed, when you piece it all together, it's designed to show us the face of Jesus Christ. So that if you take Jesus out of the Bible, then the Bible just seems unclear and haphazard. You put Jesus back in, and it's like the last piece of a puzzle. You stick it in, and all of a sudden the image comes clear. Um, See Jesus Christ, and you'll get God the Father. See Jesus Christ, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. All Christianity orbits around the person of Jesus Christ. And the whole of the Bible orbits around Jesus Christ. And therefore, Christian teaching is all about taking a portion of the Bible taking into account its unique context and teaching, taking into account its unique language and its cultural background, reading it well, reading it rigorously, and then cutting a path through that passage to Jesus Christ. And the conviction is that it's it's not that we're just kind of uh, reading Jesus in where Jesus isn't present. It's rather that as we read this text and see how Christ is the center of it, that's when the fullest meaning of that text will come clear. So a, a, yeah, a, good, road, a good road trip. Do you like road trips? Eh. I love a good road trip. I miss road trips. I, mean, I live in New York now, so it, road trips are like sentimental. Um, if, if you, if you need two things for a good road trip. You need more than that, but you need at least two things. You need a destination, because if you don't have a destination, you're just lost. And, but you also, it's not a road trip if you just skip to the destination. You've got to go through a good road, and you've got to see beautiful scenery, stuff like that, um, on your way to your destination. Um, you also need a good soundtrack. But... That's not part of the metaphor. Um, um, (laughs) Joshua Tree, you too. That's where you start. Everything else goes from there. But anyways, um, now, go back to the text. Um, Rightly handling the word of truth means you cut into a bit of the Bible, like you're cutting a road, and you cut through it to arrive at Jesus so that you can see him more clearly. And you take into account the contours of the text you're dealing with. But you always arrive, those contours show you a new aspect of the person of Christ. Now, that's what my job is. Every single sermon I preach, every every time I counsel someone, um, every time uh, there's a Bible study, that's what happens. Home group leaders, this is your job. Uh, home group members, when you show up at home group and you guys are te- talking about a Bible, a Bible passage, that is not a time for you just to kind of um, share your opinions about lots of things. I love your opinions. We all love your opinions. Your opinions are wonderful. But the task when you gather together is to look at a piece of scripture together and then help each other see Jesus more clearly 
through that passage. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, or you're thinking about it, or you're suspicious, or whatever, our whole aim in reading the Bible week by week is to see Jesus because we believe he's the most compelling person who has ever lived. And we hope that when you hang around with us, you'll find yourself thinking more about Jesus than anything else. Okay, so in order to please God, we need to rightly handle the word of truth. How do we do that? Well, we uh, cut a path through the scriptures that arrives at Jesus Christ. He is always the centerpiece. But then the second uh, point is, what do we avoid? What are pitfalls that we avoid? There's two pitfalls that we need to avoid. We need to avoid irreverent babble and quarreling. Verse 16, but avoid irreverent babble, uh, for it will, see, my, uh, my topics, my headings are very creative, uh, aren't they? Um, avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. What's that about? One of the signs that we're not rightly handling the word of truth is uh, that what happens is a whole church, this can happen to a whole church, a whole church can get fascinated by things that either distract from Jesus or distort Jesus. When that happens, it's like gangrene in a church, it'll kill it. Uh, Paul and Timothy are dealing with these two, uh, two people, Hymenaeus and Philetus, we don't really know much about them, um, but Paul says in verse 18 that these men, they're Christian leaders, they had swerved from the truth. The word swerved, um, that sounds like you're driving a car and you turn off the road. That's not in the context what it means. It means that you shoot an arrow, it's like archery, you shoot an arrow and you just miss the target. You're, You're just not shooting at the right target. And apparently they were teaching something about the resurrection, that the resurrection had already occurred. We don't know all the details, but we do know that they're teaching was distracting or distorting in some way missing Jesus Christ. It seems that they were likely modifying the message of Jesus Christ. Um, there, There are hints that they were kind of marketing, peddling Jesus and trying to make him more appealing to the particular audience that they wanted to attract. And whenever Christian teachers do that, they're not cutting a path to Jesus they're actually trying to get people to like them. Um, Christian teachers, one of the things you must be on your guard against with people like me, you hear me? We can make ourselves and our opinions and our preferences and our ideas the main focus rather than Jesus Christ. And when that happens, it's gangrene in the church. And it's destructive, and it's wicked. And Emmanuel, please, if you ever see me doing it or any of our leaders doing it, will you please rebuke us? Because I would far rather be rebuked by you than to find myself before the throne of God at the end, having peddled him or distorted him. No irreverent babble. On the other hand, Rightly handling handling God's word also means that we avoid quarreling about words. Verse 14, remind them of these things, meaning Jesus, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Now, this is a little different danger, and it's very subtle. Um, Paul wants the church 
to care a lot about truth, the truth of Jesus Christ. Right teaching, let me be clear, right teaching matters a great deal. Right doctrine is fundamental. Without it, all kinds of abuse can happen within the church. At the same time, and this is where it gets subtle, a right commitment to truth in people like us can get twisted and distorted into a sinful, quarrelsome spirit. So there can be times where we can sit here thinking that we're in the right, thinking that we are standing up for truth, that we're defending orthodoxy, that we're contending for the faith, that we're standing our ground. But in reality, deep in our hearts, very subtly, we're not actually cutting a path clearly to Jesus. We're just defending us. Again, we have become the center. We're defending our viewpoints. We're defending our rightness. We're defending our honor. We're defending our tribe. We never call it a tribe. Tribalists never call their tribe a tribe. And sometimes we can even advocate for true doctrine, but do it in a way that's cruel, or angry, and tragically, when we do that, we can end up demonstrating that we don't have a clue about the things we're talking about. It hasn't touched our souls. It hasn't changed our lives. We're like a, we're like a food critic who never, has, who never, never tastes, who's just all talk, but hasn't, hasn't savored. And if that starts happening to us, then uh, very often we'll degrade further and we'll end up actually advocating things that are just stupid. An argumentative, quarrelsome spirit in a church is a sign that we're not cutting a path to Christ anymore. We're just, we're just angry. Now, Emmanuel, I want to encourage you because I don't see a lot of this in you in us, I hope. But be on your guard. Um, and I emphasize this partially because I think it's a family temptation for us. Uh, we're um, reformational Protestants, we're Anglicans. We come from a family that cares a great deal about right doctrine. And our history includes hard-fought battles for Christian truth. We should love that heritage and give thanks for it. I hope you do. At the same time, every family has its sins. And in our family, we can sometimes get into fights and we can tend sometimes to harden against the people with whom we disagree and we can tend to fracture. And we got to be careful about that. Now, again, let me be clear. I don't want to be misunderstood. Rightly handling the word of truth requires refuting errors. It includes debates. It includes holding each other accountable. Don't hear me trying to tone down our commitment to accuracy. We want to be accurate in how we teach. What I am saying is that the more we cut a clear path to Jesus, the more we'll become like him. Jesus debated and corrected people who were wrong all the time, and he loved them at the same time. He was motivated by love for them. He was never a tribe guy. He was never a party man. 
And the more we cut a path to Jesus Christ, the more we'll follow in the same path and we'll share his tone. Uh, next week, in the next paragraph in uh, 2 Timothy, uh, Paul says, Timothy, you're going to need to correct some errors. Do it gently. Because what you really want to do is not just be right. What you really want to do is get your opponent closer to Jesus. So, we don't quarrel about stupid things. We cut a clear path to Jesus Christ. And we do it with gentleness and kindness and love. In part because of verse 19, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. If we are holding unholy anger in our hearts, then it means we need to bow before Jesus Christ again at his cross. Okay, what do we do? Rightly handle the word of truth, we cut a clear path to Jesus. What do we avoid? Silly stuff, babble and quarreling. And last point, why do we do it? To please the Lord. Verse 15. Timothy is supposed to present himself to God as one approved. This idea of Timothy say, standing before the Lord saying, Lord, everything I do, I want to be so that you will be pleased. So that at the end of my life, when my mission is accomplished, I will stand before you, Father, and I will hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. But then there's another aspect to it. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 says, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. So, on the one hand, Timothy is striving to please the Lord. It, he's, he's loving the Lord, and that's making him want to please the Lord. That's part of the motive. But on the other hand, verse 19 says that he is, Timothy himself is deeply known by the Lord. And the implication in verse 19 is that the whole church would just fall apart in false teaching except for the fact that the Lord knows his people. And it's not just that the Lord knows the ones that are really his and the ones that aren't his. It includes that, but it also is a relational thing. The Lord knows his people in the sense of he loves them. He knows who they are. He knows them as friends or as children. It's a relational kind of knowing. He loves his people with an intimacy and a care that imparts a deep security to us. So on the one hand, the Lord is loving Timothy and pouring out his fatherly affection upon him. On the other hand, Timothy is returning that love to God. And if you see that mutual bond of love between Timothy and the Lord, then you'll understand the motive for everything in the Christian life. It's that mutual loving between the Lord and his church that drives us to be faithful when it's joyful and glorious and when it's extraordinarily difficult and faithful for the long, long haul. It's that bond of love between us and the Lord. It's as we enjoy that relationship that we're motivated. And here's the thing, this is crucial, um, it's, not, it's not that the Lord loves us because we performed so well. The only way we can enjoy that mutual bond of affection with God is because Jesus secured our adoption and our forgiveness and that relationship when he died upon the cross. Remember, friends, Timothy can never be a perfect workman. He can never be totally unashamed. Timothy sinned all the time. And you can't be an approved workman perfect either. And I can't, and Emmanuel can never 
please God by our own works. There was only ever one workman who perfectly lived for God, lived to please God. And that's, you know, Jesus Christ. Everything he did, he did to honor the Lord. And over the course of his life, and fundamentally at the cross of Jesus Christ, there was Jesus presenting himself as a perfectly approved workman, rightly handling the word of truth because he was, he was the word of truth. And when he died and when he rose again, he took all of our failure, all of our shame, all of our not being approved workmen, all the ways that we've made Christianity about ourselves and not about Jesus, he took all of that upon himself and he suffered the penalty of all of those things. And instead he gives us his righteousness, his approvedness, if I could say it that way. He gives it to us free of charge. And it's that exchange when he takes our shame and he gives us his righteousness. It's that exchange that means that we can stand before God knowing that he knows us perfectly to whom all hearts are open. And he loves us in Jesus Christ as one of his children. And it's that security. Do you know that security? It's that security that drives us to live, to please him. Not to earn, but to please him. Not to earn, but because we have been so loved into the depths of who we are. So, Emmanuel, our long-term impact is all bound up in living to please the Lord. How do we do that? Well, one way is we rightly handle the word of truth. We cut a clear path to Jesus Christ. We avoid babble and quarreling. And we do it all. Because we're in a relationship of love with Jesus Christ, with his Father, in the power of the Holy Spirit, purchased at the cross. That's what we must do. And therefore, the final question is this. Do you know that security? Put differently, has Jesus Christ, has his cross cut a path right into your heart, right into your soul, so that you can say, I believe in Jesus Christ, not just I think Jesus Christ is probably a good guy, vaguely, but rather Jesus Christ saved me and died for me and he is my everything and he is my Lord and he knows me and I live for him and I trust him. That's how we please the Lord. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.